0: Okay, so here we are, Meridian. I imagine a lot of you have a similar policy, procedure, as I do when it comes to rewatching shows. You've got your skip episodes, right? Um, if it's a particularly bad show, you might just have your, these are the episodes I must watch. But either way, it's the same function. There's episodes that every time you go back through the show and rewatching it, you skip them. I've actually been asked for skip lists before when it comes to Star Trek, and I've given my opinion on the matter. This is one of my skip episodes for Deep Space Nine. Having rewatched it, yeah, no, this is a skip episode. <laughs> this, if anything, I admit that I like one half of the episode way more than I thought I would, because I barely remembered it, and I dislike the half I do remember way more than I thought I did. I, I'm sorry for giving that away really early, but I, I was originally going to do a joke. I was going to be like, "Oh, so here we have a character-focused episode with a good director, and it's the introduction of Jeffrey Combs into the franchise. Yeah! But it's a romance of the week. It is actively anti-continuity. It feels a completely rushed plot. Um, oh, and it also includes a will-she-leave-the-show element. This is one of the most paint-by-numbers, textbook, boring episodes of Deep Space Nine I've ever seen. And in fact, to be completely blunt, if not for the B-plot, this might actually qualify as lamentation. I don't know, I didn't have to think about it because there was the B-plot. But if it was just the A-plot? I'm sorry, in my opinion, this is garbage. (sighs) So let's get the garbage out of the way first, okay? Let's Let's just move through the muck. So, uh, let's let's refresh here. Uh, they've taken the Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant to go exploring. What I love about that point is that, and by love I mean hate, of course, is that that's the only explanation we get. I have convinced Starfleet that we should continue our exploration of the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, but, uh, what? If this doesn't sound as insane to you as it does to me, let's rewind a sec and remind everyone that the Dominion overwhelmingly outpowers the, at, at the current, the Federation. Remember how they were kind of Mary Sue-ish back in Jem'Hadar? Remember how we just spent an episode not too long ago establishing just how overwhelmingly superior the Jem'Hadar are in combat to everything we've got, right? right. Um, but no, no, it's okay. We need to keep exploring. Now, I know everyone loves that quote from Q Who. I love that quote from Who, but this is a little different than, don't be afraid to go into the unknown. To put it into a little bit of perspective, right about now, hang on, let me check my calendar. Because I'm not sure. I I do all my TNG stuff completely separate from my DS9 stuff. It looks like the episode that's going live this week is actually Booby Trap. But next week's episode is The Enemy. Which really helps to make my point here. And it looks like next month we'll be looking at The Defector. So... Think of it this way. Season 3 TNG, we are in a full-on Cold War with the Romulans. Now imagine for a moment that suddenly it, we see the beginning of the episode and the Enterprise D is coming along. And we hear Patrick Stewart's voice saying, Captain's Log, Stardate xx 553 x 32 I have convinced the Federation that despite the, the tenuous war-developing situation with the Romulans, we should continue to explore the Neutral Zone. No, actually, I'm sorry, that's eat- That's not even as bad as it is. Because they're actually exploring Dominion Territory. So, instead, rewind that, I have, deci- I have convinced the Federation that despite the threat of the Romulan Star Empire, we should be exploring Romulan Territory. What? There are so many levels of stupid to that, I'm actually having a hard time explaining it. So I hope you just get the point, I'm going to move on, I don't want to spend too much time on this. That's the first dumb thing. Also, if if you wanted another way of it, <clears throat> suddenly William Shatner's voice over, "Captain's log, Stardate whatever." We have, have, I have convinced the Federation that, despite the fact that we're in a war or a warlike state with the Klingons, that we should continue to explore a Klingon territory. I mean, really? Actually, the Romulans would probably work better back in the original series as well. But you get the point. <sighs> so then they land on this planet, and in most of Star Trek, there's that typical, you know, it seems peaceful, Nah, gotcha, there's some dark secret thing, right? It's a very original series thing to do. And for a while, I admit, when I first saw this episode my second time going through the series, I was like, okay, what's the the hint? What's the the subversion? What's the big dark secret of the planet? And I guess there really isn't one. The big dark secret is literally the first thing we learn, that they, they shift into the Aether dimension or whatever, Metroid reference, and then come back, that's it. Now, what's funny about this is this is a dumb plot, I'm sorry, uh, in my opinion, it is a dumb plot, and there's actually some really interesting possibilities here. One of the first things that happens is, I, uh, did I write down his name? Did I? Doral. I did write down his name. You know, f- forgettable love interest. Uh, the very first thing, literally the first thing he does when he encounters Dax, Judzia Dax, is ask, do the spots go all the way down? Now, that's inappropriate and rude uh, by our cultural standards. And I admit, when I first thought, I was like, really? Yeah, I get it, he's going to be the love interest. Cause, especially because everyone just reacts in kind of a, oh, very amusing kind of a thing, rather than, excuse me. Now, granted, Dax is a little more open-minded about that kind of thing in general, Imagine for a moment if he'd asked that of Kira, assuming she had spots. I think Kira might actually have to restrain herself from slugging him from that. So, anyways, so he's, he does that. And to, to prove that I'm willing to try and give this episode some credence, him being that hormone charged makes sense for two important reasons. Number one, they get a matter of weeks every 60 years of actually being corporeal and he flat out admits that having the pleasures of the flesh which is not just sex but includes things like food and hugs and being able to sit down at a table you know they they do mention all those kind of things is a big deal and that makes sense Uh, one of my favorite takes ever on a lich I know this sounds off topic but bear with me is that that lich basically lost in when he could no longer taste when he no longer had sensation of enjoying the coffee he enjoyed because that makes a degree of sense, isn't it? I mean, yeah, think of all the benefits of being a lich or a robot or an android or whatever, or being an energy being. You don't have to worry about pain or fear or anything, but you will never know any of the positive things either. So you can see how after a while you would start to crave those things. Imagine for a moment whatever your favorite food is. Just take a moment, really. Close your eyes. I'll do it too. Close your eyes. I can picture right now what my favorite food is. It's a form of sushi. I won't bore you with it. Picture your favorite form of food. I'm, I'm actually watering a little bit here. I haven't eaten dinner yet. And picture that food, okay? Now picture that you can you can have the smell of it. You can remember the taste of it. Now picture you can't eat that for 60 years or anything else for that matter. You still exist, but can't. isn't it understandable why you'd get to that point where it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to eat that. I can't wait to eat jelly beans or whatever it is you picked, right? So that's understandable, and it adds to kind of the cultural flavor of these people. These people need to make food happen, right? These people need to make population happen. They have weeks in between these interspersion periods where they can function as a, I don't know what to call it, I guess. See, I'd say a society, but a society does not require practicality. They need to deal with all the mundane things that exist as part of being a living, uh, excuse me, no, a biological, uh, terrestrial being. Food production, uh, cloth production, like where did those clothes come from, right? Where's their energy coming from? How do they get the materials for the things? Funnily enough, the writers actually acknowledged all these problems too and admitted that they just didn't have time to really go into this as much as they wanted to. So I'll at least give the writers the fact that they acknowledge the flaws here. Because they don't go into any of that. But that's the part that's most fascinating to me. Because you can make this work. In fact, this is so interesting, I might actually borrow, slash, steal this idea, with credit, uh, for one of my own stories. Because I love that concept. All right, we have, like, three months of us being physical and being able to, so we need to just have everything ready to go. We had to ha- have to have a whole system of farming and irrigation and energy production and we need people to just be cramming out food and resources as hard and as fast as we can because it, it thanks to the nature of this shift, we don't even technically need food preservation, right? We don't need refrigeration. We could just put all the vegetables out on a cot and then, and then when we come back in 60 years, that food is still there perfectly preserved, right? So, like, you could see how it would shift um, priorities when it came to manufacturing or infrastructure and, and I hate to bring this up, population. Now, I know that sounds like a strange thing, but imagine for a moment that you are only physical for a few months out of every few decades. Now, let's assume these people have an average human uh, gestation period of about nine months, right? So, you would be pregnant for literally over a century, roughly speaking. Uh, close to two centuries, actually, if we follow through on the pattern. Now I know they have a shrinking amount of times each time, but you get my point. The idea of they mention how you know you you have you've, you've you've lost your wife, you need to go remarry. I feel like there was more potential with that right there, with the idea that these people might literally have a breeding program in place, as as cold and as uh, utilitarian as that sounds when it comes to this kind of a situation, they might have to, right? <laughs> And he's like, no, I want to meet the right woman, which is all nice and romantic, but if everyone there was waiting for the right insert person of whatever gender they prefer, they might literally die out. Right? It's it's just there's all these ideas and interesting concepts, and they just throw them out the window because Dax is in love. (sighs) So, having said all that, um, they also have this ticking clock of doom. The amount of time is shrinking. Now, they resolve that, so that's nice. That is good. I I do like how uh, they get, by what amounts to pure dumb luck, they have access to the Federation for their 12 days. Like, I I don't know if I can properly explain how insanely unlikely that is, that for a 12-day window, they happen to interact with the Federation during in the Gamma Quadrant, right? Funnily enough, I actually was thinking about this. If we if we had presumed that they will not be back for 60 years, they're still not back as of the current year in Star Trek Online. Just funny little note there. Anyways. <clears throat> so, the clicking talk, ticking clock of doom is also kind of fascinating because it's really wonderfully horrifying in its own way. Like, imagine... On the one hand, you'd think, well, we get to spend more time as energy, so we don't need to worry about things like all the, all the things I was talking about, breeding or food production or material production or whatever. But at the same time, that also means that piece of food you really love, eh, you, you might get to eat it like once and then you're back out, right? And of course, eventually they'll just self-destruct as a consequence of this unst- un- instability. I find myself wondering how much the Dominion cares about this whole thing, by the way. You can't tell me the Dominion doesn't know about it, they've been around for millennia, and they're really, really anal retentive about being aware of everything going on in their territory, and every other territory, so there's no way they don't know about this. I wonder what the Dominion thinks of this planet, I really do. Anyways, so then there's these falling in love scenes. Now, I try to be as objective as I can when it comes to these videos, I really do. I mean, I try to be myself. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. But I do try to analyze my own thoughts and feelings and figure out the why. It's, it's, it's so frustrating when all I could say is, I don't like something and I can't really pinpoint why. Because I didn't like these scenes. It was nice that they established early on that he's a science head. That he's got a brain for, you know, higher quantum physics, basically, is what we're dealing with here. That's nice, because it allows a connection point between him and Dax. Cool. Then they go for a walk, climb up a tree, eat some berries, and sit by a river. Okay. <laughs> now, this is this would be nice for a date, right? Okay, I'm with that. But that's not what this is, is it? This is Star Trek love, which I make fun of constantly because it's um, stupid. <laughs> and in case you think I'm being too negative, we'll get to my main point in a moment. But I was never really able to fully put my finger on why I didn't like these scenes, other than the the immaterial nature of them. I did notice one thing, though. So the music sounds a whole lot like the music for the Nexus in Star Trek Generations, doesn't it? Now, funnily enough, Dennis McCarthy came back, uh, I believe with this episode, after having scored Star Trek Generations. Anyways. So Dax talks to Bashir... I do like that. I'll admit that. It's it's not really a great scene. It doesn't have a lot of good oomph to it. But it is nice that the person that Bashir goes to to talk about her relationships... Or, excuse me, the person that Dax goes to to talk about her relationships is Bashir. Something about that clicked with me, and I liked that. So then Doral is going to leave with them... Now, okay, I'm with that. We could always use some more recurring characters, right? But as I've mentioned many times before, for some reason, in Season 3, we just have this virulent hatred of recurring characters. So we will never see this guy again or ever hear him mentioned ever again. I think it's another reason why this bothers me. I've talked about this so many times in Star Trek in general. I suppose it bothers me more in DS9 because ds 9s supposed to be the continuity show. The very episode, The Jem'Hadar, was a continuity episode who wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't have worked in any way near the same way or function if not for all the build-up and all the establishment up to that point. And then it hit, and then it had all that more impact. That's that's, that's what DS9 is good at, in my opinion, is the background build-up. It doesn't have to be string continuity. Every episode doesn't need to lead into the next episode like they did with Season 3 of Enterprise. They do do that occasionally. But just having a sense of everything mattering past the episode when the end credits roll is a very important part of immersion and general enjoyment for me. And I usually love Deep Space Nine's continuity. And then we have this, which will never be mentioned again and will never matter again. (sighs) Anyways. So that's kind of ludicrous. But then Dax admits that she's going to stay on the planet. What? I believe it was just last week where I was talking about how in this particular era of television where someone leaving uh, permanently is just not a thing. I know I talked about it some months ago over on TNG with the season 2 episode uh, The Icarus Factor where Riker was talking about will I leave and it's a stupid point because we know he's not going to. This is the late 80s and early 90s. People don't just bow out of a thing unless something really weird happens like what happened with Yar and someone else we'll get to in the future. So. We know Dax isn't going to bow out of the show on this random episode with this random guy we've never met before or since. That's not how that's going to work. So there's no tension and no impetus. All we are doing is sitting here waiting to find out how it won't happen. And sure enough, it won't happen because Technobabble. Like, they don't even give us a solid reason. It's just for whatever reason, she does not shift properly. And she prevents them from shifting properly. No explanation. Just, that's what happens. Okay. (laughs) Why do I care? She says, oh, I'll get over this in about 60 years. Uh-huh. <laughs> I Really? Now, I want to make something very clear that I don't actually blame Terry Farrell for any of this. She actually does a pretty good job with what she's handled. And handed, excuse me. She handles what she's handed pretty well. I, and I know that's a weird thing to keep commenting on, but for some reason I've been paying a lot of attention to her acting in this uh, entire franchise so far because it feels like she's one of the only actors who really wants to stretch her acting boundaries. Um, it's not to say the others are bad actors. Quite the contrary, actually. I'm very satisfied with all of the main actors in Deep Space Nine. But Terry Farrell feels like someone who's consistently like, give me something more to do so I can grow as an actress. I've just gotten that impression from her consistently. Hence why I keep commenting on it. Anywho. So, um, I'm going to bring up an episode that I'll be talking about uh, in a couple weeks. Yes. Two weeks from now. I've already covered this episode from my perspective, but it's coming live in a two weeks. It's the episode, The Price, um, Season 3, Episode 8 of TNG. Now, spoiler alert for, the, for my thoughts on that episode, in that episode, Troy falls for a guy, and summary, 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 he's a chocolate sundae. Now, let me continue the analogy in case you don't get it already. Chocolate sundays are fine. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong with treating yourself to that, really no shame, no judgment. However, if you want to eat a chocolate sundae all day every day you got a problem. In fact you will literally have malnutrition if you do that because it will not be getting your body what it needs. You need something more real. Now in my opinion this applies to romance as well. There is nothing wrong with having a chocolate sundae as long as it is acceptable and morally uh, considered and uh, mutual as far as you and them go. That's fine. You want to have a fling? and they want to have a fling, do it. No judgment. The problem is this episode presents in every way, uh, whatever his name is, Dural, as a chocolate sundae you know, fling of the week, and then seems to imply that Dax is willing to leave her career, leave her friends, uh, leave her life, and go exist with this guy in an energy dimension for 60 years before ever being a, having a chance to come back. That's a hell of a commitment for a chocolate sundae, isn't it? And it's what—it's probably the worst aspect of this entire episode, in my opinion. I just look at that like, I'm sorry, what? Really? There's this scene where Sisko says, I just want to make sure you, you've thought this through. And she's like, no, yes, this is what I really want. You know what I'm reminded of? Two things from both perspectives. When I was a kid, a stupid, idiotic kid, I once decided to go do something with my girlfriend instead of doing the responsible thing that I should have been doing for my job at the time. At the time I said, I don't regret this. This is completely fine. Of course I want to do this. It's it's her and I'm in love. Uh, we broke up about a year later and um, I don't really feel like I need to keep going with that. I have also seen that same situation happen from the adult perspective in more recent years. In other words, what I see when I see Jadzia Dax and her, oh, this is definitely what I want, is I see a kid insisting that they know when they don't. You know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Most of you probably have been that young and have thought, oh, I totally know this and this is totally what I want, when you didn't. And some of you are probably old enough to have seen that perspective as the adult and looking at the child who is insisting that they know what they want. I shouldn't say child, that's derogatory. But you know what I mean, younger person, young adult, teenager, who is like, yes, this is totally what I want. I totally know this. Right? I mean, I didn't buy it at all. And I'm left with a weird thought here. I said back when we were covering The Search and the Jem'Hadar that it's off to Season 3 and Season 3's got awesome stuff. And there are great episodes in Season 3. But I find myself wondering if we're having a Voyager situation here. Now, any of you who watched my Voyager ruminations, first of all, I'm sorry. (laughs) I didn't really have the same production values back then and I wasn't really doing this for a job, so I was just not taking it as seriously as I could. But one of the things I found going back through Voyager was the fact that If you asked me before I did those ruminations, I would say, Oh, season three is my favorite, absolutely. But after going through it, season three had a lot of kinks and a lot of flaws to it that I didn't really remember. And later seasons, five comes to mind immediately, but season four as well, were just way better in like every way. And I was like, huh, I don't think I ever realized that. I'm starting to wonder if this is a similar situation. I mean, this is only episode eight or whatever, I think. What are we up to? Yeah, eight. This is only episode eight of season three. But so far, it's just been kind of like, eh? I mean, next week is uh, Defiant, so that's something. But after that is Fascination, so I don't know. Let's talk about the B-plot. Now, this is gonna sound weird, but actually, I I feel like the B-plot is far more interesting. I doubt I have more to talk about, because I have less to complain about, and there's less there. The B-plot is a guy comes in who is Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm a big Jeffrey Combs fan. Um, he's on the show for the first time. This is the very first role. Some random guy who will never be seen again. No recurring guest stars. And he wants a program, program made for him about a celebrity. Now... This is the first time this has come up in covering TNG or DS9. I will be covering this topic again in the future in TNG when Barclay is introduced. However, this is the first time I'm going to finally address this topic. I warned you guys that in, in talking about TNG and Space 9 we would have to talk about holodeck sex. Now, we're all adults, right? Or, well, okay, I don't know how old all you guys are, but we can all have an adult perspective on this. So let's just get the giggling out of the way, okay? Get the awkwardness out of the way. Get the little whatever. Let's actually approach this as reasonable adults, okay? There's nothing wrong on the very surface level of things with walking into the holodeck, summoning up a holographic recreation of whatever it is you want, and having sex with it. Let's just get that out of the way. I've actually talked about this before in brief on Voyager, but it really comes up on TNG and DS9. That's why we're going a little more in-depth to this. Where things get a little bit complicated is the specifics of whom you summon up. Let us use a real-life example. Um, I don't actually know any porn stars, so porn star Babina here. Let's assume for a moment that she actually sells a full hollow scan of her body, whole thing inside and out, to you know a, a holodeck company, and thus she is obviously complicit in this and willing and accepting of the idea that random strangers are going to have sex with holodeck re- recreation of her. Therefore, most people would probably agree, within reason, that there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. However, we also know that there's a big thing for, oh, I want to be with celebrity such and such. Either, like, a Hollywood celebrity, or someone from, like, from a television show, or someone who is a fictional character completely, like from a video game, or from, um, a book, for example. Or, um... I guess that's all I've got. So the idea then comes into mind. What do you do with that kind of celebrity person? Is that considered acceptable? If you really want to have a... I got one. If you really want to have a Beverly Crusher holodeck, like pretend holodecks are in real life, and thus TNG is a fake show, thus Beverly Crusher is a fake person, right? So if you really want a Beverly Crusher holodeck, Right? Is that something that's acceptable? Because it's entirely feasible that Gates McFadden, who plays Beverly Crusher, might not be okay with that. And you're not really asking for a Gates McFadden one. You're asking for a Crusher one. But it's also worth noting that if you are physically attracted to this person, and let's be honest, if you want a holographic sex toy, then you are mostly physically attracted to this person. Then what you are really wanting, functionally speaking, is a... Gates McFadden holiday program, right? So you can see how this can get a little, into a little bit of a gray area And she might not accept that There might be legality about that But let's leave legality out of it for a question Because that's a whole other topic This is more about the ethics and morality And the, the con- consensus part of the situation As ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on the matter In this case, we have a fair Let's, let's actually use the episode's example This gentleman wants the local military commander Of the Bajoran presence on this station To, to be a sex toy He wants a sex toy recreation of her Obviously, he has no interest in her. That's fairly well established in the episode. He's he's snooty, snobby, rich, um, and there's a couple other points about that I'll bring up. So he just finds her physically attractive. So in other words, I want a holographic recreation of you to have sex with. Now, based on her reactions to Quark, she is obviously not okay with this, and of course she isn't. This is Kira. That makes sense. But you see how we kind of enter the gray area because do we have, like, officially licensed holographic recreations of celebrity characters? Um, do we have illegal ones that are considered unacceptable, right? Like, like say, uh, I don't know, Bill Clinton. We'll use a guy. I, I'm trying to go for celebrities here, and I'm trying to hit things that aren't just, uh, you know, people who are uh, t- actors and whatnot. So let's assume for a moment that this is... Forty years ago, and Bill Clinton is someone who I actually know two women personally who find found very physically attractive. That's why I'm using Bill Clinton. So let's say one of those women, you know, thirty years ago, twenty years ago, um, really wants a Bill Clinton holodeck character, okay, hologram. Now, if he publicly stated or or basically had something where he could just say no, do not do this for me, then the only way those women could get a hold of that was for, through some kind of um, not really legal means of doing so. I don't want to get get into this topic too much, but this is real life and the internet, so there's probably a good chance those kind of bootleg holodeck scans will exist. I mean, Bill Clinton was a fairly well-known, fairly public figure, where there's probably plenty of opportunities to get all of the scanning data you need of him in order to be able to recreate him in a holodeck, right? And he has officially said he's not okay with that. Now I would probably say that is wrong, personally, and I and I mean that with total sincerity, morally wrong, ethically wrong. But I don't think there's a lot you could really do about that per se. I mean, you could try to stop it, but that's not going to work. You could try to interfere with someone if they're in the middle of doing it, but that's just awkward, embarrassing. So what do you do about this problem? Right. Now, we could build in restrictions into the holodeck programs, or excuse me, the holodeck hardware itself. So that only things of a certain string value or whatever can go through, that will not prevent everyone from doing these bootleg holiday kind of characters, but it would probably raise the bar, the the barrier to entry, if you will, significantly enough that we would have less of those issues. Um. Excuse me. This there's a I'm I'm only touching the surface of this by the way because. There's a lot this could go into, but let's talk about the next step down. This is something that will be relevant over in the TNG episode. What about co-workers or friends? Be honest with me for a moment. How many of you out there have ever fantasized, small, large, doesn't matter, about a co-worker or a friend sexually? I will raise my hand on this one. I'm not going to give you names. I don't trust you guys that much. But that has happened to me um, twice in my life, I can picture. I could even name both women in both cases. I'm not going to say. <laughs> now, I mentioned that because what if you had access to a holiday and said, I want a program with we'll call her Bobarella or Bob. Because again, gender doesn't matter for this purpose. So we'll just call them Bob Bobarella. There we go. Just to make it nice and uh, neutral there. What if you wanted that person? You can see how this starts to get even murkier the further down to the personal level this gets, right? I mean, how would your working relationship change with that person if you technically had sex with something that looked a whole lot like them and sounded like them? How would their relationship with you change if they knew it was happening? Would they be consenting to that kind of thing? And so forth and so on. Now, some people would argue that there's no difference functionally between that and simply... Masturbating about them topic, right? Like, if you happen to find someone of whatever gender you find preferenceable, particularly interesting, and you decide to go off by yourself and think about that person, there's not really a lot that anyone can do about that. Especially if you're doing it, you know, properly, privately, you know, not doing it at work or whatever, right? And the dog's barking about it because the dog's really upset about this topic. (laughs) Woof, 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 as they say. Sorry. Nothing I can do about him. So that leaves us with how would you feel about this? And ultimately, I have no answers here. I mostly just want to discuss the topic. And as ever, for anybody who's stuck with me this long, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the matter. Would you be okay with someone randomly deciding to have sex with a holographic recreation of yourself? I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. But then again, I am a very prudish person, as I've said before. I feel very, very strongly about the privacy of my own intimacy. Hence the word, intimate. It's me and her. I happen to be interested in females, so me and her. And that's it. You know, no kissing and telling, no openness, no whatever. That's This is just my personal preference. And again, no judgment on anyone else for any other preferences on the matter. But for me, I would be one of those people who'd sign the list saying, no, please don't use me, right? Make sense? But, like... <laughs> You could see how awkward some people might feel about saying, yeah, I'm cool with it, because that might change the dynamic between them and others around them. And, of course, how, how hard is it to really get a proper scan? Now, it's worth noting that Quark is really, really, really dumb about how he does it in this episode, to the point where it's actually badly written, and that irritates me. But I do find it really frustrating. It just I, Sorry, Quark was so stupid in this episode. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Back to the point. What do you do about that? right? Do you think that's acceptable? Do you think that's unacceptable? Do you think there should be limitations? Now obviously some limitations should exist. That's a duh. But where those limitations should exist, well that's a lot more debatable, isn't it? We'll talk more about this I think. I think think we've covered as much as we're going to for the moment. We'll talk more about this when we get to TNG. So let's let this topic sit for now. All we know right now is that Basically, a rich guy wants to have sex with what is basically a sex toy based off of a local celebrity. That's what he wants. So again, we're going back up to like the surface-most level, the Bill Clinton example again. Now, Kira has rather flatly said no. Ergo, this is something that is not considered acceptable. What I find most interesting is that Quark at no point in time tried to simply ask, can I take your scan for a holodeck program? Now, we know the reason why, because she would assume it's for sex, and she would be correct. But that brings up another interesting niggle, doesn't it? Let's, say you're, let's go back to my Bill Clinton thing. And let's say that you are Bill Clinton, and you say, do not use me for these sexual programs. Do you still consent to be scanned for holodex? Because, as has been pointed out before, and I have pointed this out before, there's a lot you can do on the holodeck that is not sex. There is, in fact, an enormous amount of things you can do on the holodeck. It is one of the most versatile, multi-use tools that has ever been conceived in all of fiction. Only surpassed by a sonic screwdriver. So, I'm just really getting the references today. So, for example, let's use the Bill Clinton thing. Actually, I got a better one than Bill Clinton. Uh, Let's go with... um, uh, Let's go with... I was going to say Hitler. You can't tell me lots of people wouldn't want to scan a Hitler stab stab, um, but well, let's, let's just stick with Bill Clinton. I mean, what, How about people wanting? Okay, Bill Clinton's probably a bad example. of this. hang on, let me rewind for a second. Let's use because see, most of the people that I could think of are old and dead now. Let's just use the Star Trek examples, right? Let's let's try to drop analogies for a moment. What if someone wanted a scan of Jean Luc Picard, right? What if someone wanted to be on the bridge of the Enterprise working alongside Picard in a fictional state, right? Running through pre-programmed missions and battles, and at that point it's basically a video game, right? Can't you see how easy it would be to understand why so many of these celebrities, like Kira, would, would be scanned for these kind of programs? Cork himself even uses that lie. It's, it's actually strange to me, because it's one of the most believable lies I have ever heard Cork say, ever. We actually have real-life Star Trek programs where you could be on the bridge with Picard doing exactly what I was just talking about. And Kira, for that matter. That's a real thing. The, the VR sim- bridge simulator and the PC version simulator both already exist. There's already a market for that kind of thing. You can't tell me there isn't. And that's just at the most fundamental level. What if you wanted to have, like, your own crossover story, Right. If you don't know what I mean by that, remember that that holodecks are also used for novels, And that there are plenty of writers, we find out more about this in Voyager, but this is also mentioned in other things, that there are plenty of writers who, rather than writing things down or dictating things, get on board a holodeck and program the holodeck to tell the story for them. And that means having those scans. So what do you do then? Do you say no to being scanned ever? Will there, again, to, to continue the direct comparison, is Kira saying, you will never put me in any of those holodeck programs ever. I will never be a part of the Bajoran resistance program. I will never be part of the fight against their Cardassians. I will never be part of the, 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 the Star Trek Deep Space Nine campaign mode. So you can see how this is kind of an interesting quandary. And why I find this side of the episode so much more interesting than the other half of it. There's so much more to think about and so much more to process over here. Even though Quark's an idiot and Odo's an idiot and Tyrone well, he's actually cool. Jeffrey Combs is awesome. But <laughs> I love the bit where he just casually pulls out a, uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called. There's like uh, strips, uh, I, I can't remember. It's like strips, something, bars, and then blocks. He pulls out a giant thing of latinum is the point, just click, clonk. <laughs> and my super valuable ring and it's just like wow so cork's an idiot i'm sorry just look at my notes here let's just fast forward this a little bit here cork's an idiot um his lie is valid i do find as weird as this is going to sound i like how cork actually did make her you know you're the millionth customer here's some champagne you get a visit to the Hula Suite. you get a few few rides. Kira, and credit to not a visitor, Kira actually acts genuinely happy about this. Like, oh, I've never won anything before. Right? It's just a little thing, but it's a nice thing. It's probably one of the few nice character moments in this whole episode. That little bit, and the bit with Bashir and Dax are like the only two good character moments in the whole episode, in my opinion. Um, so I just like that. And she's like, oh, that's perfect. Her birthday is today, and she's going to enjoy Oh, that's great. Thank you. That's awesome. Good stuff. Very human. Um... One last point before I move on. Combs' character, Tyrone, or something like that, mentions he has his own hollow suite. And Quark, the way Quark reacts is that that's expensive. I like that. To use a real life parallel, I am presuming it's the relative equivalent of having your own uh, movie theater room in, in of your own person. I don't mean just like. Uh, the projection systems that we have now which we do have, I actually have two friends who has one of those um, I mean like actually having you know the lines of seats and the full massive screen and the actual projector and all that fun stuff, you know an actual theater system, so you can actually watch a theatrical release of a movie in your own home that's, that's how I relate that, because that is a thing that is real in real life and is very expensive in real life I like to think that because to me that makes perfect sense in my opinion the very concept of a holodeck or a holosuite is the kind of thing that in any society that values that isn't a post-scarcity society it would be very very expensive right it would take a lot of time a lot of materials a lot of programming a lot of maintenance and therefore would be the kind of thing that only a large establishment would have Or a nation would have because functionally the holodecks on Federation uh, ships and Starfleet ships are at the national level. That is paid for and purchased and produced by the state. I like that. I do like that idea and giving it a little bit more context and setting building. (sighs) I don't know how long I've been rambling about this episode. I do apologize. I hope you've enjoyed this awkward, incredibly strange discussion. I'll see you guys next time.